Today what we're doing as we worship under the theme of the glory of Jesus is we're looking at sort of the backwards, kind of in parentheses there, the backwards glory that Jesus demonstrates in Mark's gospel. See, it's a glory that's very clearly obvious. Adrian just read about that a moment ago. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus reveals all of his obvious divine glory to his disciples. It's a glory that's obvious, but... It's a glory that is perfected as he goes to a cross. In other words, it's a glory that ultimately comes in humility. It's a glory that is received like a little child. What does this mean? The text tonight comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And here we read, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Here ends our lesson. Um, it was fairly customary in those days that Jewish parents would bring their little kids to a rabbi in order for him to bless their children. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I, as, as somebody who doesn't have any kids himself, uh, I always find some of the characteristics and behaviors of parents in what they do for their little kids in order to try to give them special advantages in life, I always find them a little peculiar and I don't always... I don't always get it, to be honest with you. Let me just give you one example. Um, This isn't as common today, but uh, uh, even a generation ago, uh, there was this very common practice that people would bring their little children to a president that the president might kiss their babies. For the life of me, I cannot figure out why you would want the president to kiss your baby. I don't know what that does for you, and for that matter, I wonder, if you're 100 people deep down the line of the president kissing your baby, do you really, I mean, if the president's mouth has been on a hundred other babies, do you really want that person kissing your baby too? Is that really something that's desirable? I don't get what that accomplishes. It seems very odd to me. Fortunately, I think this trend is going away a little bit. I couldn't even find one single picture of uh, President Trump kissing a baby. I can't Imagine a bunch of people saying, Mr. Trump, will you smooch Jr. here? And I could just, that would make my day. You don't see it anymore. But the point is this. Um, For generations, for thousands of years, people have had this fascination with bringing their children to highly influential figures, assuming that that figure could in some way, shape, or form bless their child. Why do we do that? I don't think you can make a case that anything happens if a president uh, kisses your baby. Uh, And I don't know if you could make the case, you know, if a rabbi touches or blesses your baby that anything happens. Why do we do it? I think we do it because in the deep non-conscious of humanity, we know that there actually is one true authority figure that if he touches us, if he kisses us and he blesses us or our children, we will be truly blessed. And that's what we see in our lesson here tonight. Um, In those days, children were absolutely loved, but they weren't highly valued. And that was for a number of different reasons. Children didn't have rights, 
for instance. Uh, we sometimes miss this as 21st century post-enlightenment Western people. Where we believe every human being, no matter how big or small, child or adult, has certain inalienable rights. Most civilizations throughout history have not actually believed that. Um, and so we forget that. The babies in those days had zero rights whatsoever. Not only that, they didn't often last very long. Uh, so because of uh, poor medicine or poor nourishment or for whatever, you know, high infant mortality rates, uh, infanticide. In the Roman Empire, it was actually very common that people would take their little children, if they didn't think they had the capacity to provide for them, uh, they would take them out into the field and just leave them there. In fact, this is a little bit of an aside, but the early Christian church, I believe, formed the first organized uh, adoption agency. Because the early Christians said, there's no way we're going to let those little, kill, those little kids die out there, so why don't we get them and take care of them ourselves? But the point is, uh, children often didn't last long. Uh, most historians will tell you that between five and seven out of ten, so like half of all kids in those ages would never make it till age 12. So little children had no social power. Uh, they were kind of here today, gone tomorrow in some senses. Uh, they, they were considered energy uh, drains, resource drains, not resource suppliers. And for all of these reasons and many more, the disciples, uh, and on this particular occasion, they did not want people bringing their little kids to Jesus because they couldn't in their minds figure out any way that little children would advance Jesus' ministry or in any way would advance the kingdom. Uh, I'm absolutely certain they thought what they were doing was pleasing Jesus and helping out Jesus. I think they thought what they were doing was making Jesus happy. It didn't. Uh, in fact, it's one of two spots, right here, it's one of two spots in Mark's gospel where we hear the phrase that Jesus became indignant. The only other spot is, is in Mark 3, uh, and it's against the Pharisees. Now, this teaches us something very important. If the disciples actually think they're doing something very helpful and very noble to advance the kingdom and towards Jesus' ministry, and yet it turns out that in reality they were just making Jesus furious, what does that tell us? It tells us our natural instincts as we relate to God are a little distorted, sometimes even entirely backwards. Okay, what it tells us is that our thinking is backwards, our approach to glory is backwards, our attempts at receiving the kingdom is naturally backwards, and therefore our lesson tonight teaches us three basic things, okay, all in the, the grand scheme of the discussion about children. Number one, it teaches us the importance of a child, it teaches us the importance of us becoming like a child. And number three, it teaches us the importance of God's first child. Got it? The importance of a child, the importance of becoming like a child, childlike, and the importance of God's first child. First of all, the importance of a child. And we're going to pull this teaching out of verse 14. Uh, let me remind you what it says. There it says, Jesus said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus makes it abundantly clear here that he wants people to bring their little kids to him so that he might bless them. You'll notice Jesus does not say, uh, I think it's wise for you to have your kid um, figure out their own pathway to truth in life. I don't want you forcing your faith on your kids or any other, other things like that. I very often hear modern young uh, adult parents saying those kinds of things about their kids. Jesus says, bring them here. 
And in fact, uh, in the parallel gospel account in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, the word that he uses there for little ones, uh, ta brefe is what it is in Greek, and it actually means infants. Bring your infants to me. The kingdom of God belongs to those like infants. Uh, Now, some commentators will actually use that passage as kind of a proof text for uh, baptizing little children and baptizing infants. And I actually think that's going a little bit far because this text isn't actually about baptism. Nonetheless, what I do agree with is that unequivocally, Jesus is saying here that he has the capacity to to bless your little children if you bring them to him. He says, I love your little children even more than you do. I'm capable of blessing your little children even more than you are. Bring them here. And if you think this is just kind of a unique and maybe kind of far-fetched, one isolated teaching in Scripture, it's absolutely not. The entire countenance of God teaches the same thing. If you look at Deuteronomy 8, Proverbs 22, earlier in Mark, in Mark at the end of Mark 9, uh, Ephesians 6, 4, they all say the exact same thing. They all say, bring your little kids to God that he might bless them. So, the, the first point here seems to be fairly simple. Uh, he, God says about little kids, value them and honor and bless them by bringing them to Jesus. My question for you within the framework of this first point then is, do we value kids? I actually think this is a, a worthwhile thing to think about and debate. Do we value children? I think depending on what metrics you look at, it could go one way or the other. If you look at things like what we do to improve fertility rates today. Uh, if you look at America's adoption rate, do you know that America adopts more kids than the rest of the world combined? Um, if you look at the amount of dollars that we pump into each individual kid, which is currently more than proportionately it's ever been in our country's history. Uh, if you look at the fact that the millennial generation is sometimes referred to as the most wanted generation in US history. Uh, All of those things would seemingly contribute to this idea that we do highly value children. But there are metrics on the other side that suggest otherwise. I'll just point to one of them. One of them is something called a fertility rate. And if you don't know the fertility rate, the amount of kids birthed per woman uh, in our country has been on a steady decline, except for one little blip on the map from 1950 to 1960. So post-World War II, there was a spike in babies being born, which is why that generation is referred to as the baby boomers, right? Aside from that uh, kind of anomaly, if you go from 1800 to the present, the fertility rate goes from 7.1 in 1800 down to a little over one and a half in in modern times. I think there's probably a number of factors that, that work into that. So for instance, if little children aren't living as long, it would make sense that a woman might have more children. Um, If uh, you live in an agrarian society where you need more hands working on the farm, it would stand to reason that uh, parents would desire to have more children. I think there's a number of factors, but I don't know how you interpret that free fall of a number from 7.1 to like one and a half as anything other than we seem to desire children less than perhaps we have in the past. Now, Social scientists who understand this stuff a lot better than I do will tell you things like uh, a society is completely 
uh, incapable of sustaining itself if you fall beneath the number 2.11 as a fertility rate in your society. If you go for 2.11 underneath that for longer than 25 years, you cannot sustain your population. Uh, in fact, we've never seen a culture uh, come back from falling down to a 1.9 fertility rate. And in fact, what they would say is that if you get to a 1.3 fertility rate, it's statistically impossible for your population, your culture ever to come back. Now, whether or not those numbers are true, and social scientists have been wrong before, so whether or not all of that's true, I don't know for sure. What I do think is actually hard data is in Europe today, you know what the number of uh, the fertility rate is? 1.3. Um, interestingly enough, Europe's population is not shrinking. Why? Due to immigration. 90% of which is Muslim. And Muslim culture has a fertility rate of 3.1. It's the highest of any culture in the world. Uh, I read a book a couple years ago, it was a fascinating phrase where the author said that Europe is currently doing to itself what it fought uh, valiantly to prevent the Ottoman Turks from doing in the Middle Ages. Uh, and now the statistics seem to suggest that by about the year 2050, Europe will be a Muslim continent. Now, I have absolutely zero opinion or commentary on any of that. I, what I want it to do is be uh, contribute to the conversation of the question that I asked a moment ago. Do we value children as a culture today? About a year ago, I read... Uh, an interview, an article with an interview of a woman named Margot Caseman, who is uh, actually a Lutheran theologian who lives in Germany, and she's the former head of the evangelical church, the evangelical uh, churches, excuse me, an agency of churches in Germany. And the reason I filed it away is because she made a fascinating statement about this whole kind of debate. Uh, and she art articulated it in a way that I had never heard before. She said that the fertility rate drop in Europe, which in her country of Europe, it's, it's one of the lowest, if not the lowest, fertility rate. And she said it was due to a lack of faith. Specifically what she said is apart from all the factors that mean people are having children much later, many people are simply put off by the bind that having children involves. She said, ours is a society which is obsessed with having options. We want to test everything first, and having children is obviously something you cannot test in advance. We have a society of people who are unwilling to make a leap into the unknown. We have people who lack faith. So Margot Caseman is saying that the lack of children comes from having a lack of, of faith. Uh, which is an interesting thought. It's a little bit different from what Jesus is saying in our text today, which is uh, a lack of people bringing their children to Jesus is due to a lack of faith in what he can do in them and do for them. Now, we got to be very careful here. I got to be very careful here. The Bible in no way, shape, or form spells out how many children you're supposed to have or, or any for that matter. Uh, it doesn't say that whether or not you're supposed to send your kids into uh, a certain kind of school, a parochial Christian elementary school or a public school or a home school or any other possible option. It doesn't say whether or not you're supposed to vaccinate your children, regardless of what Facebook tells you. Uh, 
it's, it, we've got to be very careful not to legalistically make assertions that the Bible simply does not make. And yet we also have to be clear about boldly proclaiming what the Bible does very clearly in principle proclaim, which is what? Value kids and make efforts to bring them to Jesus. What that practically means is that people, even like Adrian and I, who actually have no children, you know what we don't have the option to do? We don't have the option to not value children or press towards bringing children to Christ. Um, We can do that in a number of different ways. You can pray for kids. You can mentor kids. You can volunteer in a Christian elementary school. You can help create uh, a great children's church. If there was ever a, a Christian who might be inclined to say, hmm, kids, I don't know if that's in my wheelhouse. I don't know if that's, you know, exa- it, it, might be my, it might be me, possibly. But I'll tell you what, if I'm going to submit to the text that Jesus is bringing before us here today, I don't have that option. I must creatively give some of my energy and some of my resources into bringing the next generation to be introduced to Christ. All of us single, married, or anybody else. The importance of a child. Value a child and work tirelessly to bring those children to Jesus. All of us. Point two. There's also a point here about becoming like a child in order to receive the kingdom. This verse, we're going to draw this point out of verse 15. Here it says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter into it. Now, we've said each week in this series uh, that the kingdom, the kingdom is a very important theme and concept that Mark works through his gospel. And Jesus is the cosmic king that humbles himself all the way from his throne in heaven down to a cross in order to die in our place for our sins that we might share in his glory. But the real question then is, how does the kingdom come? How do we go about receiving the kingdom into our lives? Now, in Jesus' day, people had opinions about this just like they do today. Uh, In Jesus' day, I would say there are two basic viewpoints. Some people thought that the kingdom would come by way of force. In other words, if we can just assemble enough people, if we can get the numbers, if we can get the political allies, if we can get the weapons, if we can get the money, we we can advance the kingdom. Other people thought maybe the kingdom gets advanced simply through moral reform. Maybe if we can just get people to clean up their lives and become better, more decent people, that will make God love and bless and accept us more, and that will make the kingdom come down. Both of those, by the way, aren't really based on grace. They're based on our performance. Nobody in that day was saying this. Nobody was saying what Jesus says here, that the kingdom comes by becoming powerless children. What does it mean to become like a child? Well, Let me start with what it doesn't mean. First of all, Jesus is not saying that heaven is is like Neverland. You know, in Peter Pan, heaven is not Neverland. Heaven isn't just filled with kids. Um, In fact, Jesus is actually very specific in his wording here. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven belongs to these, i.e. children. He says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's an entirely different wording. Uh, And therefore, Jesus is not encouraging us just in general to become like kids because you can think of dozens of ways why it would not be advantageous for us all to act more like children. 
He's not pushing childishness upon us or immaturity or ignorance or anything like that. He's not saying childishness. He's saying childlikeness. People need not, not kids per se, but something like kids. Well, what is it that is like kids that we should become in order to receive the kingdom? I'll say it's two qualities. Two qualities in order to receive the kingdom. You've got to become like kids. Number one, you have to become dependent and know it just like little kids. Uh, little kids have some kind of built-in self-awareness about their own personal frailty and weakness and limitations that we adults don't have. That's why a little kid can come to you and raise their arms and grunt and say, uh, up. You know, a three-year-old can say, up, and mom or dad will maybe pick them up. Uh, but if you turn that around, if on some, you know, one day you say, you know what, I'm tired, why don't you pick me up for once? You know, why don't I get a piggyback right now? A child's not even going to attempt. What do you think they're going to butt down and grab your leg and just really try to lift you up? No, they don't do that. They'd say, Daddy, I can't do that. Why? Because they understand their limitations. A little creature who knows that he doesn't know enough how to cross the street has no presumptions and no pretensions about being able to get himself all the way to heaven. You see, everything they have, everything they get, every place they go is entirely dependent on somebody else. Children have within them this natural mechanism, this natural belief, it comes very naturally, that in order for me to get anything good, it's going to have to come from somebody else doing it for me. Why? Because I'm dependent. It's only after living years in a fallen world that you start to live under the lie that you're in any way, shape, or form self-sufficient or independent. Jesus says, become like a child. You're dependent. He also says, like a child, expect to be accepted. Uh, children expect to be accepted. They expect to be loved. That same little kid, that three-year-old that comes up to you and puts their arms up, they're anticipating that you're actually going to pick them up. And if you don't, they're going to be shocked and appalled by it. Uh, children expect to be loved and accepted. Have you ever noted that, noticed that little children don't have cordial conversations. They blurt everything. That's all they, they only blurt. They announce everything. They assume that everybody in a given room is entirely fascinated with everything they have to say. That they are perfectly interesting to everyone in the room. It's only after living in a fallen world where you face rejection after rejection after rejection that you start to think, oh, Nobody can stand me. Nobody loves me. I can barely stand myself and I'm certain that a holy God probably can't stand me. Maybe I should do something great in order to try to get him to love me and accept me. Jesus rebukes all of that. He says, no, I want you to become like a child. The gospel says that you are simultaneously both totally dependent and totally accepted by God. Now, practically and functionally, what this means in your life is sometimes we struggle with having too high a view of ourselves, too high of our goodness and our capabilities. We think, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm not perfect, but I'm maybe better than most. What does this mean you've forgotten? You've forgotten your sin. My goodness, it does not take a little moral decency to get you or me to heaven. Do you honestly think because you made a donation to the Red Cross during Katrina or because you, your, your dog is a rescue or because you've never murdered anybody, that punches your ticket to eternal life? 
oh my goodness, we've, if that's the case, we've underestimated the tragedy of our sin and the splendor of salvation. And what's the solution to that? The solution is you've got to look to the cross. If it took the death of God's only son in order to get you and me to heaven, that means you and I are not capable of doing this on our own. We have to come to the realization that we are totally and utterly dependent on his grace. On the other hand, some of us struggle with too low of an opinion of ourselves. Uh, I'm unlovable, I'm messed up. What does that mean you've forgotten? If you have too high of a view of yourself, it means you've forgotten sin. If you have too low of a view of yourself, it means that you've forgotten grace, which means you have to do what? You have to go to the cross. If God specifically was willing to die specifically for you, why do you still question whether or not God is for you? Why on earth would you worry if God is for you? Why don't you believe that dad's got life under control? Uh, Maybe you remember that some of you, if you're, if you're blessed with uh, a really good father, and I know full well that not everybody was, I also know that every Christian one day will have the perfect father for all eternity. But if you were blessed with a good father growing up, you know that there is nothing like an authoritative word from dad to calm down your troubled heart when you're really scared. So if you're really stressed out about something, but dad walks in the room and he says, don't worry about it, sweetie, don't worry about it, Uh, buddy. I got this under control. Don't worry about it. It's nothing to worry about. Go to sleep. Nothing can calm your heart like that. And what that means functionally is if you're struggling with worry in your lives, you're still not seeing that dad's got it all completely and entirely under control. You are accepted. You are protected. There's a reason why a lot of people uh, fondly remember their youth because it's the liberation of not only not having to be in control of your life, uh, but it's freedom from the delusion that you actually ever were. It's a confidence that dad is actually in control. Do you have that balance in your life? That balance of totally accepted and yet totally dependent like a child? Uh, Do you have an unmistakable humility that comes from a deep sense of dependence on your heavenly father, do you also have a peaceful calm and comfort and confidence that comes from knowing that the verdict is already in on your future and it's very, very good because of the grace of Jesus Christ? Your future is entirely locked up in his work in heaven. Dad's got it taken care of. Your room is already prepared and he's going to mentor you right along the way individually as you are on your path to getting there. Do you have both a humble dependence and confidence and acceptance? If not, maybe not yet, maybe not as much as you'd like, I've already told you this, there's one place to go. You go to the cross. Why? At the cross, Jesus, who is the only rightful child of God, who never broke any of dad's rules, switched places with us. And he became an abandoned child, forbidden from the arms of his father. Why did he do that? Because he loved us. And he wanted all of us who have broken all of our father's rules to still have our place on the father's lap. God has seen you at your very worst and he's seen you at your most embarrassing. He's seen you flail around and me flail around at life many times. That's why he sent your older brother to come here to earth to rescue you and me because you were worth every bit of it. What's the point? Some of us are probably too confident in our own goodness right now. 
Others of us are borderline despaired and um, constantly beating ourselves up, constantly walking around with this woe is me, nobody loves me kind of attitude. Neither one of those are spiritually childlike. What do you need to see? You see the cross and you see I'm totally and utterly dependent and you see I'm totally and completely accepted. Receive his grace and the kingdom will sink deeper into your heart. Let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we know, we know, according to your word, that we are dependent. We also, because of your grace, expect to be accepted for the sake of Jesus Christ. This, above all things, will make us supremely humble and supremely confident. In other words, the cross for us and the the spirit in us will make us more Christ-like. We're asking you to help sink that, that, that message, that gospel message a little deeper tonight through your word and as we come to your table. In your holy name we pray, amen.